Well, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new here, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be out in the foyer at some point. Uh, we're in a series. We've been looking at this series. We're calling it the Protege, and it's we're looking at First and Second Timothy, and it's a, it's a story of a historical time when Paul was trying to get Timothy ready to lead the church at Ephesus, and we're. We're in week four, we're all the way down to verse 12, which is about normal for us. Um, and um, we've been talking about how the primary purpose of this letter is that Paul is trying to tell Timothy that there's false teachers. They're not coming, they're already there. And he's gonna be instructed that it's his job in Paul's absence to silence them. And we looked at that last week. Timothy's job is to protect the truth, to protect the gospel message. Paul tells him, this message has been entrusted to you. You have to guard it. You'd expect him to then tell Timothy, don't forget how Jesus came, how he died, how he resurrected, how he's coming back again. You expect him to go through that and instead, and you also expect him to say, look, get your arguments ready. These false teachers, they're going to lie. They've twisted the gospel. Here's what you need to do. And instead, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to flood them with love. Our aim is love, he says. And we looked at that last week. Remember, Paul's primary concern is false teaching, and the way he's going to silence that is with God's love. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We talked about that last week how God pours his love out through us to other people. For believers who love the sinner but hate the sin, we see sinners not as, not as our enemy, but as victims of Satan's deceit. Too many of us are attacking people who don't know Jesus. They, they just are being deceived. And it's our job to love them, to bring them into the kingdom by letting them know that God still loves them. It's, it's a love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So, so I wonder, what do you expect Paul to tell Timothy next? What's the most loving thing you can possibly share with another person? Let's dive in and see if we can find it together. I'm going to read the entire passage and we're going to come back and unpack it. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul has just spoken about the aim being love, that love would conquer false teaching. Then, oddly, he switches and tells his testimony, a testimony that no doubt Timothy already knew. He probably heard it many times. Paul, you're going into your testimony. You forget, I'm Timothy. I was there. I remember. Of course, that's your testimony. Why start there? 
In the midst of all this, he gives one of the most concise, clear, and compelling descriptions of the gospel in all of scripture. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. That's it. That's what you need to know. So let's dive in a little bit deeper. I thank him who gave me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul says he's entrusted with the gospel because Jesus enabled Paul, and Paul's thanking God for enabling him. Paul realizes, I didn't do anything to get this. I, this isn't me. For some reason, God has, through faith, built my faith up to the point that I can now serve him. I was counted faithful for the ministry, and now I can be used by God to carry on the message. You see, we often see our service in the church and as Christians, we see it as volunteering. That word's not in Scripture. The word in Scripture is slave. We're slaves. We're duty-bound servants of Jesus Christ. We do whatever he says, whenever he says it, wherever he says it, at whatever cost it is. We are slaves. We are slaves to the mission. Paul will often refer to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. But he says, the reason, the, the reason that I have this position is because I was faithful. You see, you don't have to be smart to be faithful. You don't have to know everything about Scripture to be faithful. You don't have to be talented or gifted. Faithfulness is kind of a very down-to-earth, every one of us can be faithful if we choose to. In whatever area God has put you, placed you, or sent you, you can choose to be faithful. You can also choose not to. Paul said he was appointed for service, and that word service is where we get the word ministry. Paul says, I was appointed to ministry. Now today, ministry has this big kind of spiritual sound to it, but in the first century, it just meant that, that I, I'm sent here to work hard and to serve. That's what it meant. This former blasphemer, this former persecutor of God's people now has the honor of serving God himself. And with these words, Paul's about to give Timothy another reason to stay at Ephesus. Remember in the first week we talked about how Paul was going away and told Timothy, no, you stay there. You got to fight the teaching. Timothy most likely felt unworthy. He was very young. He didn't have a lot of experience. And Paul's writing saying, look, if anybody's unworthy to deal with this, it's me, not you. And yet God found a way to use me. He'll also find a way to use you. You stay in Ephesus. God's going to do great things. You see, the key to ministry, the key to surrendering to Christ is to never forget where you came from. Amen. To never forget the person you were before you met Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes, I'm a sinner. First and foremost, an enemy of God. I was an opponent of God. You gotta understand, we, we blow through Paul. Paul was the enemy of the church who then led the church. It would be like Adolf Hitler becoming the leader of the World Jewish Association. That's how radical that is. That's how crazy the idea is. We forget that when we read scripture. 
Paul said he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Those two things go hand in hand. Everybody who has unbelief acts ignorantly. They act out of what they don't know. That's what it means. And yet God's mercy covers that, and it covers that for you too. He continues, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul tells us, look, God's grace is purposeful. He's patient. If you've ever thought, you know what? God would not save me because I've hated him. I've done too much. I've gone too far. There's too, you don't know what I've done. I've fought God at every point of my life. If you think you're beyond the mercy of God, hear this. God chose to take the chief persecutor of the church and make him the chief missionary to the church to show he is patient, he loves, and he invites sinners to believe in him and change their lives. No matter where you are or what you've done, these words gain full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. If you don't sin, you don't need Christ. Every person needs Jesus Christ because every person is born with a sin nature. Jesus did not come into the world to develop some theological or ethical system. He didn't come into the world to make good people better or to make a new and improved you. He did not come into the world to found a new religion or a new religious establishment or to have churches all over the world. He didn't come into the world to create a new social order. Some of all those things have happened, but he came into the world for one reason and one reason only, and that is to save sinners. That's why he came. And then Paul says, of whom I am chief. It's Paul's way of declaring, not that he committed all the worst sins of the world, but that he was most in need of God's salvation. We're all fellow chiefs with Paul. It's a powerful sentence that captures the gospel in nine words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here we learn about the gospel, the grace of God, and the glory of God. Though many years had passed, Paul never forgot who he was, who he had been, his conversion experience. And the message that comes through the story that if Christ could change him, Christ could change almost anybody. Paul tells us that Christ came into the world. He didn't come into being in Bethlehem. He existed long before that as the second person of the Trinity, the preexistent, eternal Son of God, who was there with the Father and the Spirit before the foundation of the world. He committed the ultimate act of uh, condescending grace. He came into the world as a baby born in Bethlehem as a human. Put on the robe of human flesh and came for us. That's called incarnation. That's what it means. God became man and came to save us. But why did he come? Well, he came to live the life that we could not live. To die the death we deserved to die. And to rise in victory over the enemies we could not conquer. Sin and death. 
There's no greater wonder in all of history, and yet Paul tells us it's true. It's not like the myths of the false teachers. It's not like the speculation of the false teachers. This is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, he says. This is reality. It's undeniable. Here's a trustworthy saying, he says. It's different than the speculation of the false teachers. Then he says this this is universal. It's it's full acceptance. The original text means it's completely reliable and should be universally accepted. Third, it's the essence of the gospel that came to save sinners. Paul has recently said in this passage that the law, it was given for sinners to recognize that they're in sin but Christ came to save them. The other thing Paul says here is this this is personal. You have to respond, you have to choose. Individual acceptance, he says, I'm the worst. I know God came to save sinners, but let me tell you about me. You see, I'm the worst, he says. He humbles himself, I'm the foremost. Now notice something here, notice the verb tense. He says here, I'm the foremost, not I was. My nature, my cause, it's the foremost. Paul was so vitally aware of what he'd done in his past that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse than him. It's the language of every sinner who's been in face-to-face with the Holy Spirit. When you, as a sinner, encounter the Holy Spirit, you begin to realize just how unworthy you are, just how deep and dark your sins have stained the world and stained other people. It's the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. We start out like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. But we end like the tax collector who beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Don't forget, the guy who wrote this used to be the single greatest threat to the church. He wanted it wiped off the mat. He stood there while Stephen was stoned. He devoted his life to arresting, imprisoning, and killing Christians everywhere he could. In fact, he was on the way to Damascus to kill Christians when he met Christ. Amazingly, God poured his grace out on Paul, and he seemed to be the one person who deserved it the least. In this, we learn that God's grace is unconditional. There was nothing about Paul that would have drawn God to him. Paul's salvation originated in God, was carried out by God, was perfected by God, and done by God alone. Paul had nothing to do with it. And the same is true for you and me. We're not saved because of anything we've done or any condition in us or any worthiness that we have on our own. We're saved solely on account of the sovereign grace of God. He looked down one day and said, come home. Paul finishes this passage. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The result of the testimony of your life always ends in praise. This is where I was. This is who I am now. Thank you, God, for not leaving me back there. Not only does God's grace demonstrate his patience, it always moves us to praise. 
The apostle was overwhelmed that he'd received mercy from such a king. He knew who he had been. He knew who he had become. And he knew who made the change. Paul took no credit for his ministry. He just considered it an honor to be a slave and serve King Jesus. Paul reminds us here that Jesus is God and God is King. Not right now, not only right now, but for all ages and forever. He's immortal. He never changes. He never gets tired. He never makes a mistake. Never misses anything. He's royal. He's impervious to death. Decay will never touch him. He's beyond the limits of what we can see or even imagine. No one and nothing can compare to him. He is the only God and will receive honor and glory forever. And then Paul seals that testimony with amen. May it be as I have said. Testimony always leads us to praise. Paul begins his instruction to Timothy by telling him a testimony. A testimony that Timothy knew well and probably was intimidated by. Paul had an incredible story. He had an amazing story. You wouldn't believe what happened. I was the chief persecutor of the church. Timothy's got to be sitting there going, well, I just kind of grew up in church and believed. And Paul's got this huge story that he's talking about. Why did Paul tell Timothy his testimony? Why did he tell Timothy his testimony when he could have been teaching Timothy all the things to say about the false teaching? In order to understand that, we've got to dive a bit into testimonies. At one point in my life, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I did. I, just like Perry Mason. I wanted to be a lawyer just like Perry Mason. For those of you that are like under 50, you just deal, just pick a lawyer. I love that moment when somebody testified to the truth and you knew it couldn't be refuted. I love that. There was something about the courtroom, the drama, when the witness got up on the stand, swore an oath to God, and then actually told the truth. Or the damage that was done when somebody did that and didn't tell the truth. Eyewitness testimony has enormous power to persuade. If the testimony is true, it's power for good. If the testimony is false, it's great power for harm. But power it has. The power to persuade just on someone's word, their testimony to what they've seen. You know, you can't be a witness to something if you never saw it, right? We can't really testify or witness events that we haven't experienced. What good is a witness who wasn't there? I was in Dallas the day JFK was killed. I didn't shoot him. I was two years old. Never called in front of the Warren Commission. I can't witness because I hadn't seen anything. That's a problem for us, isn't it? I mean, when it comes to the gospel message, when we tell people that Jesus was God, that he did miracles, that he died and resurrected, we weren't there. We believe, but we don't really know. We have faith that those things happened in history, but faith always requires you have a little bit of doubt. Otherwise, you'd have certainty. 
And yet Jesus tells us to be witnesses and to share the good news. For years, I really struggled with that. God, why should people believe Jesus lived, died, resurrected, and lives today just because I believe it? And the answer is they shouldn't. If I got up on the witness stand and told the story of Jesus, since I wasn't an eyewitness, no jury would decide based on my testimony. No rational person would either. Surely they would ask for more proof. They'd ask for additional support. They'd ask for new evidence. They'd ask for something because they'd look at me and go, Frank, you weren't there. You don't really know. You believe, but you don't really know. And that's where evangelism gets really cloudy. You see, we think that evangelism is proving to Western minds that Jesus lived and he died and he resurrected. We act as though we have to prove that in order to convince people that he was their savior based on our witness. Which of course is flawed because we weren't there. If someone told you that an alien landed on the planet years ago, came to earth, blessed people, healed some people, died and resurrected and said he was coming back, would you believe it? Would you need additional evidence? What evidence would you require? Photos, video maybe? Have you heard people talk about the moon landing? The truth is that unless you were there and you actually witnessed it, you likely would not believe it, particularly if it's miraculous and supernatural. So what are we missing? What would Jesus tell us to be witnesses of if we weren't there and didn't experience him when he was here? Well, the answer is he didn't. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the command, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What's our assignment? To teach the world all that Jesus told us to do. didn't say defend the gospel. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice carefully what Jesus said right before he ascended to heaven. We're commanded to teach them all that Jesus commanded us. And two additional truths, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He didn't say, you'll be my historians. He didn't say, you'll be my theologians. He didn't say, you'll defend me to the world. That's not what he said. Don't miss the key point that many Christians misunderstand. When we initially respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, there are two components. Living a life, obeying what Christ has commanded and being his witness, that's our job. Your life and your message are what you share with people. You can only be a witness to what you've experienced. Your eyewitness testimony is credible because you were actually there. The events that you're to witness, that you're to testify to, are the things that God is doing in your life right now. 
Too many Christians think that sharing the gospel is about arguing history, debating dinosaurs, debating theology, defending the Bible, holding your moral ground, attacking false teachers personally, distancing sinners and looking dismissively at those who disagree with us. Eventually getting to the point where we just try to scare them that they're gonna to go to hell if they don't do what we say. Is that really what Jesus left us here to do? This is why I really don't like apologetics very much. You know, when a Christian gets on a stage and argues with an atheist, it's been happening for 2,000 years. They both just end up further entrenched. Jesus told us, look, if you want to change the world, if you want to change false teaching, if you want to deal with the issues facing the church, pour love out on people. Be witnesses. Be witnesses throughout the world. In addition, he told the disciples, don't you dare go out into the world until you receive my power. Because nobody can be a witness for me without my power. So the disciples waited on Pentecost. They re received the full measure of the Holy Spirit. And they're empowered now to go out and be a witness. So in Acts, we learn how they testified to what Jesus said, did, and experienced. God wrote down those testimonies in scriptures, and we read them today. We study them today. They were the witnesses of what Jesus did in the first century. They were his disciples. They can testify to what he actually did. You and I can't. It's their testimony, not ours. Remember, three things required to share the gospel. A spirit-empowered believer of Jesus Christ an authentic and credible eyewitness testimony and a life that matches what you claim. Those things are indestructible. Notice I didn't mention scripture. Sharing the gospel does not initially require that you pull out your Bible. Telling people who don't know God what the Bible says. Bible says this, the Bible says that. That won't convince anybody who doesn't know God and doesn't believe in the Bible any more than if somebody pulled out a Koran and started reading you what you should do. If we don't know God, then his word doesn't really matter to us yet. It'll come later. Because you see, relationship always precedes rules. Think about it. You don't follow rules of anybody unless there's a relationship established first. If your kid is running through the church and somebody grabs him by the hand and drags him and tells him to stop, you would look at them and go, who are you to do that to my child? You don't have a relationship with them. You're not their parent. In the Ten Commandments, the first thing God said before he gave the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God. That's the relationship. Therefore, these are your commandments. If I'm not the Lord your God, these are not your commandments. Relationship always precedes rules. Funny how Satan has convinced most Christians that they don't know enough of the Bible to witness to people. Please hear me clearly. The Bible is critical. It's important. We as believers based our lives on that truth. It's what our church is founded on. It is the foundation of everything in the world for believers. But it is not involved in the initial presentation of the good news to people who don't know God. Jesus didn't say you'll receive power and go refute every argument. 
silence the critics and convince people with your incredible intellect. Why? Because there's no logical argument that would convince anybody to follow a supernatural God. You don't reach salvation with your mind. You reach it with your heart. Jeremiah 29, 12, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, Jesus, the Lord says. You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you get to that point in your life where you have to know, it's no longer a, wow, I'd really like to sort of figure this Jesus thing out. No, God, if you're real, I have to know. I have to know. It's the most important thing in my life, God. I need to know if you're real or not because I don't want to base my life on a lie, but I also don't want to miss you. So of all the things, if you never do anything else for me, reveal to me that you're real so I know. When you get to that point in your life, God promises in his word he will meet you there. But you've got to seek with your heart, not your head. reason is he's love and love always connects the heart intellectual debate stimulate the mind testimony penetrates the heart so leave your Bible behind skip the Roman road don't mention scriptures don't try to go back and prove what happened 2,000 years ago or when a bunch of dinosaurs showed up don't argue with anybody intellectually. Yes, I said that. Just do what the disciples did. Make sure you have power from on high and go tell people what you have seen. So what have you actually seen God do? Did you see Jesus walk on water? Did you see Jesus raise people from the dead? Did you see Jesus set the captives free? Did, did you see Jesus die on the cross? Were you at the tomb when he resurrected? Did you see him reappear on the road to Emmaus? No, you're not a credible witness to those things. The disciples took care of that in the scriptures. But you may be thinking, well, yeah, but the Bible said, yes, it does. And they're all true. And there were moments in history that are all true. But that book means nothing to a non-believer. I know because I was one. My parents and everybody used to throw Bibles at me all the time. I didn't believe in God, so the Bible didn't mean anything to me. I knew there was a God, but I didn't understand what Jesus did. I didn't catch it yet. I was, I was not there yet. And you could have thrown a million scriptures at me. You could have taken me down a Roman road. You could have pointed everything. I still wouldn't have got it because I was still up here. It means everything to us, but nothing to them. So save it for later. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The non-believer will not accept the things of God and will not understand the story of the cross. You see the problem here? You see why evangelism is often so ineffective? Such a challenge to us? Just like you need the spirit before you can share your testimony, 
People need the Spirit before they can understand the things of God. You and I are going into a world of people who don't know our God. They don't know Jesus, and they're limited in their understanding. We are to witness to them. We're commanded to witness, to tell people only what we can testify to, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. Evangelism is not about defending scriptures, arguing with people, or simply telling the truth of what you've experienced, nothing more, nothing less. It's called your testimony. Every believer has a testimony of what God's done in their life. Nothing to do with scriptures, nothing to debate. It's what I've experienced with my God. It's my experience. It's my eyewitness testimony. I can swear with absolute certainty of the things God has done in my life. As the essence of the gospel is Jesus himself, the essence of Christian witness is telling the story of Jesus and how he shaped ourselves, our own story. No one can argue with your experience. You say you experience, you there to accept it or reject it. They can't argue about it. I say this happened in my life. I was here, I met Jesus, this is what happened. I have a peace I never had before. I'm a completely different person. I didn't do it. God did it. You can't argue that because I'm telling you that's what happened to me. You have to either accept it or reject it. Every one of us has a different testimony. Each one crafted by God. Each one ready to be used for somebody who needs to hear your story. Evangelism is simple. Go tell people what Jesus has done in your life and why you place your hope in him. That's it. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. This is the answer to my life. I found it. This is where I was. This is what happened to me. I can't believe it. And now this is what's happened to me. Your testimony connects with people's hearts. So we tell our testimony. That's where I was. This is what happened when I surrendered to Jesus, and this is what's happened to me since. 1 Peter 3, 14, Have no fear of them or be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That word defense throws people off. It makes it sound like you're in some kind of battle. The original word there is an explanation, a full reasoning. Anybody who asks you, why do you have the hope that you have? Now, what does that require? It requires that they see that you have a hope they don't have. Why are you going through this circumstance and you're okay and I'm going through it and I'm freaking out? Why do you have the hope that you have? What do you have that I don't have? Do it with gentleness and respect. Is that how you describe Christians on social media lately? Disagreeing with people, gentleness and respect. No memorized scriptures, no Roman roads, no detailed arguments about creation. People living in a fish or the size of Noah's Ark, all that can come later. There's plenty of time for that. You don't have to understand all that right now because you don't have the spirit yet. 
You may say, but, but why would they believe me? My story isn't powerful. My testimony is not that important, really. I dare you to get on your knees and tell God that. Get on your knees and tell God that what he's done in your life is unimportant to you and not worthy of sharing with somebody else. Every one of us was born an enemy of God. And through his spirit, we heard a testimony that led us back to him. I became a believer in Jesus because I found a neighbor who shared the incredible story of how God changed his life. I looked at his life and I saw that he truly lived what he believed. He shared with me what God had done in his life. I'd heard many testimonies before. I ignored them. But this one I knew was true. And I knew it was for me. How did I know that? What, what made this testimony of this man so life transforming for me? When he spoke, I could feel the presence of God in the room. As he shared his testimony, his testimony was validated by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the room. He didn't save me. He just used his witness, his testimony, to allow the Holy Spirit to save me. Ephesians 2, 7 or 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It was not your own doing, it's a gift from God. And this is the key to evangelism, the most important thing that you need to understand. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You don't save anybody. I have never saved a single person. I've never, a pastor, I saved a, no you didn't. Jesus did. Don't take credit for his work. Do you see evangelism the way Jesus planned it? Go tell the world what I've done in your life. Let the Holy Spirit do everything else. If your testimony falls on deaf ears or is met with resentment, just move on. The Holy Spirit has not yet prepared that heart to receive. Move on and keep throwing seed to somebody else. There's nothing wrong with your testimony as long as it's true. They're just not ready to receive it. The Holy Spirit's not prepared them yet. Just keep moving. You be a witness. Let somebody else be the judge and jury. When you ask God to use you in your testimony to reach other people, stand back because the gates are about to open. When you get on your knees and you go, God, look, I'm ready to share the reason why I have the hope that I have. You put people in front of me who need to hear it. I'll be there. God, send me. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I want you to leave this room today with beautiful feet. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to the harvest to send laborers out into the harvest. You see, God never wastes pain or tears. I counsel and comfort people all the time. I tell them, God doesn't waste pain. God doesn't waste tears. God's taking you through this and he will get you through it because there's a higher purpose here. 
The most difficult moments of your life were likely allowed so that you could share that experience with somebody else later who's going through the same thing. You may ask God all the time, how can anything good come out of this? Just wait. The pain in your life always ministers to other people. God doesn't waste pain. Most difficult moments of your life were likely allowed so you could share that experience. Evangelism is not wasting what you've witnessed. It's not keeping silent when people need to hear about what God's done in your life. It's also not about glorifying your past sins. We need to be careful in our testimonies that we don't appear anything more than it is. It's always the product of unbelief. Notice Paul didn't go into gory details about what he did before he was a Christian. He just said, look, I was an enemy of God. It's much more interesting letting you know what God's done since then. Many times I've heard testimony in which past sins were virtually glorified. Oh yeah, I was this and this and this and this. And sometimes I see people go, how could God ever use me? I, didn't, I wasn't a prostitute hooked on crack and God found me in a box. I grew up in church and believed. I don't have a testimony. There's a difference between testifying to God's ability to change your life and intentionally or unintentionally glorifying your past sins. You've got to be careful. But that other side needs to be stated. It doesn't need to be hidden. You were those things. Paul had nothing to hide because God had forgiven everything about his past. That doesn't mean he started every testimony with a long rehearsal of every sin he's ever done. But it does mean he exercised his freedom to share with them what he thought was appropriate for the moment. Right now, there's somebody in your life, I guarantee it, who is desperate to hear your story. I guarantee it. God's already placed them there. I don't know who they are, where they are, and you may have to share your story with a bunch of deaf ears before you find them, but there's somebody in your midst right now that God has placed there because your story could change their life. There's nothing better in a crisis than to have somebody come alongside of you who's been through what you're going through and can testify to the power of God in those circumstances, how he guides them, how he leads them, how he comforts them. You are that person for somebody. Make sure you have the Holy Spirit and then be ready to share the reason why you have the hope that you have. The context of this letter is that false teachers in Ephesus need to be silenced, and they need to be silenced with love. You don't silence critics by arguing with them. Have you ever seen that work? Have you ever seen a debate between a believer and a non-believer and the non-believer goes, ah, okay, you're right, I'm done, thank you, we're done. That never happens. You likely have no ability in and of yourself with no matter how smart you are, how much you know scriptures, how great you are at theology or apologetics, you don't have it in you to truly silence an enemy of God. There's only one thing that silences God's enemy. That's God himself. He must reveal truth to them. He must change their heart. Even the most incredible testimony has no impact if the Holy Spirit's not changing their heart as they listen to it. Your life
life has no impact without the Holy Spirit. The work being done during your testimony is the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is be faithful to share your story and trust the Holy Spirit to do whatever else is necessary. Your testimony is your story and the way you're living your life, and those two have to match up. If you say you're surrendered to Jesus and you're still doing a lot of things that you know you shouldn't be doing, people are looking at you and go, why would I listen to you? You're a hypocrite. Your life and your story have to match. That's the power. We're going to see in this letter how many times Paul tells Timothy to make sure he's living a moral life. I begin by asking today, what's the most loving thing you can share with another person? It's the testimony of what God's done in your life. It's not an argument about scripture. It's not about theology. It's not about the Bible. I've experienced God. Here's what's happened to me. Let me share it with you. What's the most unloving thing you could probably do to most people? Not share your message. Think that they're too far gone or maybe they don't deserve Christ or maybe God's given up on them or, or maybe it's too inconvenient for you. Are you kidding me? We're to love people. We're supposed to love them into the kingdom. What's the difference between your testimony and the testimony of a false teacher? presence of the Holy Spirit. You have something they don't have. You can bumble through and stumble through your testimony and the Holy Spirit's still going to do what needs to be done. If you're just willing to start speaking. Paul's going to tell Timothy that the way he lives out his faith will be his greatest witness. Eventually, there'll be a time to open the Bible. There'll be a time to teach those who now have the Holy Spirit what the Bible's about. Now they can understand it. It's not folly to them anymore. They have the teacher that teaches all things. There'll be time when believers are held accountable to what God's Word says. There'll be times when believers are responsible to obey the Ten Commandments. There'll be people who surrender to Christ, come up out of the water and say, you can hold me accountable to the teachings of Jesus Christ. That time will come. And there'll be time for them to serve Jesus, their new Lord, as his slave and become part of the church. But it all begins with a mess, a messenger, and a message. The message never changes. It's always been the same from the day Jesus showed up. The mess, something happens in somebody's life that makes them receptive to hear other alternatives. They realize they don't have it all figured out. The messenger is you, armed with the Holy Spirit, and an incredible testimony of what God's done in your life. You're going to share your message with gentleness and love and respect and let the Holy Spirit do everything else. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you made it real simple for us. You just asked us to be a witness to what we've seen you do in our lives. And God, that benefits us, that benefits other people, that benefits everybody, because when we tell our testimony, it moves us to praise. It reminds us of where we were. It reminds us of what you've done. It reminds us of how much you've changed us. It changes us. It makes us thankful. It makes us praise you. For those who don't know you, they see a life completely transformed. They're being told with love and gentleness and respect of this incredible God who loves them too. They see the life change in you. They see the way you're living out your life and they want it, but they don't know how to ask. 
God, each person in this room has been uniquely shaped by life circumstances, some painful, some horrible, some that seem just incredibly terrible, others that seem quite good. They're all used to shape us so that we can look at another person who's desperate for you and say, I've been there. I have what you need. I know the way home. Let me share with you what God's done in my life. Help us, God, to be witnesses. Help us to be faithful. But God, please don't leave us where we're at. We love you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name.